0: Hi and welcome to Global Governance Futures based out of the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. This week it's our pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Professor Bill Maguire. Bill is Emeritus Professor of Earth Sciences at University College London and a prolific author, speaker and environmental campaigner. A volcanologist by inclination and training, he's a world-leading authority on climate forcing of geological hazards, and has served on various government advisory and working groups over the years to address major risks, including the 2010 Icelandic volcanic ash problem. Outside the academy, Bill has been a presenter on various TV programs tackling the climate emergency, and is the author of multiple popular science books, including A Guide to the End of the World, Everything You Never Wanted to Know. More recently... Bill has branched out into speculative science fiction writing with the publication in 2020 of Skyseed, an eco thriller about climate engineering gone wrong. Uh, He also curates a very lively blog on his Cool Earth column on Substack, where he recently published an open letter to all climate scientists calling on them to get out of their comfort zones and tell it like it is. That the situation is worse than many are prepared to admit in public. Bill has also recently brought his candid assessment to Twitter, declaring himself to be an unabashed climate alarmist, as in, in his words, raising the alarm, and pushing firmly back against those who would downplay the potential worst effects of global heating as environmental breakdown looms into view ahead of schedule. He also has a few choice suggestions for delegates at the upcoming COP26 meeting, as well as the UK government, uh, where he will be in attendance. So it's really great to have you here, Bill. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: That's great of you to invite me. Thank you.
0: And before we dive in, I'll just invite the pod crew to say hello.
2: Hi everyone, my name is Sam. Uh, I handle the video editing, and I'm really looking forward to hopefully a kind of honest and uh, a cold, hard fact kind of conversation today.
3: Hi, I'm Jessica. Um, I work on the research and I'm also very looking forward to hearing what Bill has to say about uh, our current situation.
4: Hi, I'm Zoe, I help with some of the research and logistics, and I just would like to echo the sentiments of my other co-hosts.
0: All right. well, let's uh, get into it then Bill. So COP26, the, the next round of the UNFCCC process begins in five weeks. You have called it the most important meeting in human history. So what do you hope will be achieved at this meeting? And drawing on your Earth' systems expertise, do you think it's still possible, uh, given the laws of physics, to keep us below 1.5 degrees?
1: Um, well, I think I'll answer the second part of that question first, and that is I, I don't feel there's any chance whatsoever in the real world of keeping below the 1.5 degrees C guardrail. I mean, we, we all know now that we need um, something like a 45% cut in emissions by 2030. And the latest report <clears throat> from the UN last Friday said, we're on track for a 16% rise. Now that is not gonna change. We just don't have the time. So, you know, we're gonna have to face the facts now that we're going to experience um, dangerous, all-pervasive climate breakdown. And it's a matter partly of adapting to that and partly of acting as quickly as possible because things are going to be bad, but the, the less we do and the later we act, the, the worse they're going to be. So this isn't an excuse for saying, oh, well, we're all doomed. This is an excuse for saying, we need to get up there and act. And that's what has to has to happen at COP26. I mean, you know, for God's sake, it's been 30 years they've been having these meetings now. Every single time, um, There have been promises made, but the missions have just carried on going up and up and up and up. So effectively, they've done next to nothing. And at this meeting, they have to act. There has to be serious action, not just promises.
2: Bill, on that topic, I was wondering, um, I think Carl Death talked about Summit Theatre in relation to the cops. And is that by design that there is that kind of performative uh, government representative ethos around the cops and is it something could could this cop be revolutionary i suppose is the, the the frank question
1: well it's it's very difficult to see that happening because so many of the negotiations go on before the actual meeting gets going um it is a bit of a, a sort of jaunt a bit of a showcase um and politicians like to be seen to be doing something. And from from what I've seen of past meetings, they're very happy if they can agree on something. And they don't really seem to be that bothered about what they agree on. Um, I mean, the Paris COP um, was a prime example of that. All the backslapping and cheering and all this sort of thing. And you know, what are you, what are you cheering about? <laughs> you've done the minimal amount or you promised a minimal amount. And, and even so, there were doubts at the time that any of those promises would be. Um, acted upon, which has proved to be the case. So there's a lot of showboating there, which is uh, not pleasant, really. I mean, we don't need to see that. We need to see people sitting around a table saying, "We've got to do something now. We drastically, we've got to do something." And uh, unfortunately, I can't see that happening.
0: So, as someone who's been, you know, in the in the trade, so to speak, for for uh, over two decades, who's followed this process closely as a scientist within the academy, but also as someone who, uh, who has spoken out in, in the public space as well. How do you understand the disconnect between what you and colleagues are revealing in, say, the Earth systems sciences and the ecosystem sciences around planetary boundaries being breached, around the accelerating sixth mass extinction? How, how do you understand why... Uh, That reality uh, seems so decoupled from our political and social response.
1: Well, there's there's two aspects to that, I think, really. Firstly, I don't think a lot of world leaders actually get climate change. I don't really think they understand how bad it's going to be and how uh, the impacts are going to be intruding themselves into every aspect of our lives I really don't think they quite get that they still think many of them oh it'll be a bit hotter and there'll be a few more storms or whatever um and they still think we can handle it we can cope we can tackle this emergency by business as usual with a little bit of green pale green tinkering around the edges um that just seems to be the case and the other point is that our planet effectively and our society operates by means of unfettered free market capitalism. And many of the world's leaders do not want to see that change. And they won't accept the fact that if we're going to tackle climate breakdown, and effectively, uh, capitalism isn't the way to go. It's not going to work. And I think the the Working Group 3 report of uh, the IPCC, when it comes out, will make that point. Um, whatever, whatever your political views, capitalism doesn't work in this situation and it's making um global heating and the the climate breakdown worse and i think a lot of politicians uh, they do not want to turn away from that they want business as usual and they will do anything they can to keep business as usual
3: bill you said that world leaders you think they don't understand exactly how bad it's going to get um do you think that this is because of a willful ignorance um because they likely have access to people who, like yourself, who do have the expertise to predict how bad it's going to be. Why aren't they being involved in the policy process or why aren't they advising world leaders? What's keeping them out of the room?
1: Um, in, in, there are certainly some cases where world leaders have some inkling of how bad things are going to be, but I think they just you know, they, they're concerned with so many other issues that, for although for many people, climate change is the biggest threat to human history, I think for many politicians, it isn't. Um, they are concerned with shorter term things. They're concerned with the, the economy in this uh, last few years with the pandemic and all sorts of other issues. So you know, it's scientists, even their own advisors, are finding it very difficult to break through in many cases and get these people to... To look at climate change in a completely different way it is not like all these other short-term and medium-term threats it is a massive threat it is the threat and uh, we we just you know speaking for all scientists involved in in climate science uh, we haven't managed to do that for many world leaders we just haven't managed to break through so it's partly well i wouldn't say our fault but it's partly the fact that we haven't managed to do that and partly the fact that they also in many cases don't really want to listen because um, the sort of things that need to be done to tackle the climate emergency affects their worldview. It affects their their um, political viewpoint, and they do not want to go down that route.
3: So, world leaders are are um, not prepared to disrupt the status quo and risk their their power. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, in many cases, I would. Yes, and it, it's you know that's one reason why increasingly um, using technology, geoengineering, to try and get out of our current situation is gathering pace because, um, you know, in the long term, that uh, seems to allow the possibility of keeping capitalism in the fast lane while knocking global warming on the head. And there there is still that hope amongst people, and it's a grubbing hope, uh, which is really quite dangerous.
0: And you mentioned, uh, you know, that... uh, You feel, at least, that the writing is on the wall that the the industrial economic growth model that we might associate with with neoliberal capitalism uh, just is not going to uh, be adequate to the task of fixing this. So are you then a skeptic of the notion of, say, green growth? And I saw in your letters to the FT recently that you are arguing that COP26 really has to revitalise an older debate on a contraction and convergence framework which sounds awfully like something that might be an, analogous to a sort of a, a degrowth initiative um, perhaps you could just um, disentangle that a little bit and, and explain what this the CNC framework is and why you think it's so important
1: yeah CNC contraction convergence really is about is about bringing down um, emissions at the national level, but also having them converge um, on a, a level that will be safe for a particular level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, in other words, uh, the industrialised countries will have to bring down their emissions substantially faster than developing countries, and some countries may actually be able to increase their emissions uh, to allow them to develop a bit more. And it's a, a, it's a process which was devised really by a chap called Aubrey Mayer, and it's been uh, talked about in the UN for quite a long time now, a good 20 years or so, and it has a lot of supporters because of its fairness. It's, it's a just means of doing things. Um, it doesn't necessarily involve degrowth. It can involve um, a switch in the type of growth that we're, we're involved with. I mean, in green growth is is fantastic, You can have green growth at a particular level and a a, a big degrowth in in other areas and still um, contract uh, to some extent, but have a much better, much greener economy. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. To pick
4: up on getting the message across as well in terms of geoengineering, um, you chose the method of science fiction for your novel Sky Seed. Um, Is there a particular reason why you chose that? I guess it's you get a wider range of audience and i imagine a few world leaders would feel slightly uncomfortable reading some of the passages included in your novel
1: yeah i think you can get an idea of uh, through reading that novel which i hope is just you know a thriller more than anything else but yeah you can get an idea of my feelings about all sorts of things from climate engineering to um capitalism to whatever, to universities. <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of stuff in there. But you know, it's, I, re, I started writing short stories, um, speculative fiction short stories, a couple of years ago. And it's, it's such fantastic fun that I felt I needed to get a novel out there. And my agent actually uh, found one of my short stories and thought, well, this is good. You should build this up to, you know to novel length. So it comes from a short story that I wrote a while back. Um, And it it just gives you a a means to um, offload all your thoughts and ideas and worries, really, uh, while at the same time, hopefully, uh, writing something entertaining. And it's a hell of a lot more fun than writing a nature paper, I'll tell you that. Yes, you're um, not
3: the first... Academic that we've had on the podcast, who's decided to break into a different medium. Uh, we had a, a professor of health that um, did a fictional film um, based in Tanzania on HIV. So, w- what is it about about fiction? You mentioned offloading all of your thoughts, but uh, is it some way easier to get information across as close to the general public than through the traditional medium within academia? Is there something about academia itself that is is flawed in your perspective?
1: But it, uh, fiction is just a much better way of getting information across to people, I think. I mean, stories have been the way information and knowledge and warnings and these sorts of things have been passed on for thousands of years, either orally or, or later on written down. So, uh, I mean, if you compare something like um, uh, Skyseed, the, the, my debut novel, with a long list of facts and figures about the impact of of a solar radiation management and the climate, then you know people are going to be much more interested in one than the other. So it's it's a great way to to look at the threat of climate change and to give people an idea of, of what sort of world we might be facing, um, and maybe also what we can do about it. And in fact, um, I co-edited a volume of, of modern folk tales uh, two years ago, which has a whole selection of these sorts of stories in them, but written by people from all different walks of life, businessmen and artists and musicians um, about what they think the future might be like, but in story form, and that's done really quite well. It's actually the second in the series and there's another one coming out at COP. So people are very receptive to these sorts of things. They, they like to read about, uh, about what the future might bring and they remember it better as well than if they are just faced with a large number of facts. I mean, 1.5 degrees C doesn't mean anything to most people. If you bring with it a world of storms and floods and sea level rise of one or two meters and that, then it makes a much bigger impression.
4: And staying in the vein of your fiction, um, in one of your short stories that I had the luck of reading, and your novel Sky Seed, there is a very strong parent child theme that runs through that I found. And I guess my question is, as a father and an educator, what would you say to, you know, the young people of today? Um, The University of Bath recently did a poll and I think it's something like 75 percent of young people think future is frightening. Um, And I noticed the foreword of Skyseed, you know, you dedicate your novel to your children and your nieces and nephews and and the future generations. Um, And I was just wondering if you could build on that a little bit
1: yeah well I, you know it 's not surprising that, that um, a survey shows that young people are frightened they you know they need to be really and they need to use that to to galvanize themselves into action. I mean the young are doing better than anybody else in terms of drawing attention to the threat of climate breakdown and what we need to do about it um, and and I massively and fully support that i 've got a seventeen year old who 's He's had the local MP barricaded in his office up here with another crowd of protesters and they've been thrown out of the the town hall on occasion. That's the sort of thing they need to be doing. They need to be in people's faces all the time. Um, They also, when they get to vote, need to vote in a government that they think is going to do the job because although there's plenty we can do as individuals, we need somebody running the country and we need people running other countries who know what needs to be done so the, the the actions of young people is absolutely vital
2: Bill, i was wondering staying on the theme of the kind of the youth could you describe your kind of watershed moment when you realized that issues relating to the climate weren't just for geography classrooms and were really kind of existential in nature was it when you were kind of 17 18 or did it come later in life
1: when I was 17 or 18, there was a, <laughs> this wasn't even on the horizon. <laughs> I mean, it, it was in scientific circles, um, but obviously, you know, that wasn't something I was involved with. Um, it's just evolved s- slowly through my academic career, really, because in my PhD, I worked on Mount Etna in Sicily, and I worked on a, a large feature on the eastern flank. A huge chunk of the volcano had disappeared, and it proved uh, after I spent three or four years working on it, that the, the side of the volcano had slid off during a period of very heavy rainfall during about 7,000 years ago or so. And uh, magma intruded into this very wet volcano at the time, generated steam, which pushed the side of the volcano off. So that's the first inkling of a link between you know, changing climate and and uh, what it can do in terms of, of hazards, natural hazards, <coughs> natural hazards. And then I went from there, really, looking into the impacts of... Um, climate on volcanoes in the Mediterranean area in general uh, and other aspects of that. And then you know, that led into climate change and its broader impacts. So it was really an academic path rather than just waking up and thinking, wow, we're, we're in, in real danger here. Um, but it's got me to the same place in the end anyway.
2: And it's really interesting to hear that kind of evolution. And now nowadays it's often thought of that the individual... Um, even if they lived the kind of most eco-friendly life, it, it would it would, do, it would be a drop in the ocean of what needs to be done. And at, where, where do you stand with that idea of what the individual consumer should do compared to it's, it's all on COP, it's got to be all with the nations, it's got to be all with the the big companies? Is there a halfway house there?
1: Um, well, there's a, there's a two-way house, really. I mean, the individuals can can do a great deal, and... You know, if, if 50 million people decide they're not going to eat meat anymore, that will there will be no market for meat, and that will be it. So, you know, en masse, um, individual behaviour can make a huge difference. But ultimately, it's governments that are that critical, um, because they are the only ones who can, for example, stop subsidising fossil fuels, shut down oil fields, oil exploration, etc., um, stop coal-powered fire stations being built, as China has just said it will do for foreign uh, building power stations in foreign countries. So you know, governments have to be leading this charge, but there's still a massive amount we can do as individuals. And in fact, that's what I've been calling recently. I had an article in The Independent a couple of weeks back saying, why why haven't we got a public education campaign about climate emergency? I mean, in the both world wars, these played a huge part in influencing people's behavior. This threat is even bigger, yet there's nothing we should be seeing banners on the sides of buses, adverts on the tubes, um, you know, billboards, radio announcements, TV. All this, there's nothing, and that can make a big difference in terms of uh, changing people's behaviour and uh, telling people what is actually going on, as well informing them.
0: And you, you said politicians don't get it, but as Jess said, you know, obviously politicians have access to the very best environmental scientists. There are. Um, so what is it that they're not getting? Is it that, you know, we're just not cognitively wired to develop the kinds of political solutions that are required for these for the complexity of the problem and the and the sort of the long-term horizon required in terms of the 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 duration of the response? And perhaps just to add a personal note. Uh, engaging with climate science has been a real sort of learning curve for me, particularly engaging with issues around complexity systems, uh, chaos theory. And frankly, it's not uncommon to hear social science colleagues say that climate change is actually easy to solve. All that we need is the political will to unleash green growth, innovative capacity. But um, having read into the climate science, I'm, I'm wondering, do you agree? that the problem of stabilising Earth's systems is easy to solve with current technologies.
1: Well, to answer the second part of your question, I always point to the um, what happened after Pearl Harbour, the Japanese attack on the United States and Hawaii in 1941. Um, within six months, the US transformed its economy utterly, uh, put it on a wartime footing. If we wanted to do that, if we wanted to tackle climate Break down seriously we could do the same now you know, automatically overnight we wouldn't look at gdp as a measure of success we look at emissions reductions um, we'd we can we change we'd switch from building um high carbon infrastructure and high carbon products to low carbons it is not impossible it is perfectly possible but that's only if we felt we were facing an imminent threat as in the as the US did in the Second World War. And the problem is, as you were saying at the beginning of your question, um, politicians still don't get it. They're not wired up to realise that they are facing an imminent threat. Um, and it's still, you know, these next elections, three years down the road, how am I going to get re-elected rather than how am I going to save the population of this country? So it's, it, you know, that's all part of this thing about trying to break through. We haven't managed to do that yet.
0: And in some of your more pointed remarks, you seem to suggest that at least some climate scientists have not done everything that they could have done. There's been something of a, shall we say, a dereliction of duty. And we might point to your critical comments on the IPCC 2018 report and the downplaying of concerns over tipping points and feedbacks. And I mean, I, I was to maybe push a bit more on this complex problem angle. I mean, is it problematic that so much of the environmental challenge is really framed within the scientific discourse and the political discourse as a mitigation challenge with this fixation on CO2 reduction? I mean, for example, to perhaps offer a provocative example, are you concerned about the reduction of the cooling effect of global dimming if we were to stop all pollution tomorrow?
1: No, <laughs> it's a short answer. I mean, uh, global dimming is, you know, it's, it's really the result of, of pollution of a different type. I mean, you know, if we're aiming at a sustainable world, if we're aiming at um, a world we can live and survive and perpetuate upon, then, then that's, that's part of the problem that needs to be solved. And, it, and if in, on a greener world, global dimming wouldn't be a problem either because you know, it's largely uh, just a different type of pollution. So I'm not, you know, that, that, I'm not concerned about that. In regards to the um, 2018 report and playing down of tipping points and feedback loops, I mean, that's been the case throughout all the IPCC reports, and they, the point they make is we haven't got enough evidence to to support these and how bad they will be or good they will be, so we're not going to mention them at all, which is frankly a little bit daft, to be honest, Um in the twenty twenty one report, the one that's just come out, the physical basis, um, at least the IPCC pull a lot less punches this time, and they, you know, they say effectively what I've just said that one and a half degrees um, temperature rise in the real world we're not going to be able to stop. But many of us have known that for ages, so they're behind the curve as they often are.
0: Just a footnote to that, Bill. Uh, I, I was also reading recently that apparently the, the average global surface temperature is already at two degrees. And some colleagues at UCL have suggested actually that would have been the better metric than global average air temperature. Do you yeah. have a view on that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that relates to something I, I tell people a lot as well. When they say, when we talk about an average global average temperature rise of one degree um, or two degrees, that is an average, as it says. So land surface temperatures are significantly higher than that, and that's where we all live um, so, you know, that should be the metric that's, that we care about. Um, even more, though, the temperatures at the poles are even higher than that. And as that's where all the ice is, you know, that's even more concerning. So, yeah, we, I mean, it would be a better measure, I think, to be honest, to use that. And certainly we should be pointing out all the time that that is an average temperature because people still think one degree, that's great. I don't mind another one degree. But they don't quite understand how it's distributed.
3: Um, on that ominous note, I wanted to go back a little bit and um, uh, talk about the individual which we were talking about with Sam earlier. Um, you mentioned that your son engages in protests. Um, you, we've also spoken about your work um, uh, bringing information to the public through fiction, we talked about the importance of policymakers. So I guess my question is, as, a, as an individual who's just finished her education, which path would be the best one to take? Should I become an author? Should I become a professional protester? Should I become a lawmaker? Um, I think a lot of people um, my age and our generation want to help and we want to address this problem specifically, but it's difficult to know which path would be the most effective. So I was wondering if you had um, any, any views on that?
1: Um, that's a difficult one. I mean, it depends, you know, really, you need to do the thing that you feel most comfortable with. And there's no point trying to write if you can't write. Uh, I'm not saying you can't write, obviously, personally, but you know what I mean. Um, what w- you, know, you have to follow your nose, really, and say, well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to be out there being arrested or I'd like to get into politics or, or writing. I can't really tell. I wouldn't really dream of telling anyone which route is the best. They're all important. Um, in the case of my 17-year-old that you just mentioned, I mean, he's hoping to be studying politics and history at Oxford, and he... Next week, he'll be at the Labour Party conference as a youth officer of Derbyshire Dale's Labour up here. So you know, he's planning to be a number 10 in about uh, 10, 15 years' time. And that's his way of doing it, getting into politics, uh, changing things himself.
3: Going back, knowing what you know now, would you have elected to go through academia this way?
1: Well, I've gone through academia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I tell people I've never had a real job, which <laughs> I think says it all because I've been lucky enough to you know, study pretty much what I like uh, and I've had a fantastic time. Oh, I, I'd certainly do it again, yeah.
2: Bill, I was wondering, do you think that the uptake of green issues by young people can actually, this is a devil's advocate question, but can cloak the severity of their climate emergency and it can be palmed off as, oh, it, you know, it's young liberal protesters, it's the flavour of the month protest and in a, in, a, in a couple of years they'll be protesting about something else and I remember in the 60s there were protests on XYZ. Do you think that could cloak the severity of what this climate emergency really is?
1: Well, I mean, I, I suppose some people might look at it that way, but you know, this isn't just the young protesting I and mean, if you've been involved or seen any of the Extinction Rebellion protests, there are as many grandmothers as there are kids there. this There have never been protests before um, that have encompassed such a huge range of ages and um, and uh, jobs or whatever, careers, this sort of thing. there's all sorts of people in there involved. That's much more widespread than any other protest movement I've ever come across in my life. And it's just going to grow. I mean, inevitably, it's going to grow because as things get worse and as people see that, uh, you know, nothing viable is being done, then I think we're going to see more of this.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting kind of charting the, uh, the recent history of Extinction Rebellion. And I'm kind of reminded of the suffra- suffragist kind of comparison. Um, do you think the, the way that uh, governments might respond to Extinction Rebellion, uh, is there any need for a suffragist movement, a kind of softer, more palatable Version that might not put people off or do you, do you think politicians are scared of extinction rebellion to the point of seeing them as adversaries that they must not pander to
1: well, that looks like it's becoming becoming the case because they they you know they've launched an injunction against the protesters of insulate Britain for example, so they can just stick them in jail. Yes, they are scared. this government's certainly scared anyway um but I, I don't think there's a place for a softer version of XR. I think a softer version of XR would get nowhere at all. I mean, whatever you think of, of the organisation, they have pushed the climate change agenda right to the top over the last couple of years. and so made a, you know, an enormous impression. Um, and whether or, not you, whether or not you agree with every single thing they do, they, you know, they are, they've still transformed the debate, really. And in
0: terms of sort of what um, decarbonization might look like, I was just wondering, what's your thoughts on insights we might we might take from the experience of COVID? I mean, in a way, what we experienced with COVID was kind of an unplanned simulation of what you know, sort of drastic decarbonization might look like. Mm. And uh, for a lot of people, it's been a very painful experience. Uh, particularly, you know, uh, those who are more vulnerable in our societies. Um, do you think the situation with the COVID lockdowns and the aftermath of, of, of the COVID nineteen pandemic, of course, we're still in the middle of, in many ways, uh, does that does that sort of make a uh, adequate response to the climate crisis more or less likely?
1: Um, I think the, the thing about COVID is that it was you know, it, it, it involved ma- it involved massive changes to our lives and lifestyles, but you know, it was thrust upon us with very with virtually no notice. Um, any plan to to decarbonize the economy um, would hopefully be planned and not something that just happened overnight and was thrust upon us. So I don't see why you um, should be in any you know, why the situation should be anything like it has been over the last 18 months. Um, I think one of the most disturbing things about the last year is that in order for emissions to drop by about 7%, which is probably the sort of thing we need every year, year on year, we've had to go through um, a global pandemic and all the chaos that it's involved. And so that gives us some impression of how incredibly difficult it's gonna be to bring emissions down and to keep below not one and a half degrees, that's impossible, probably not even below two degrees. But it shows how incredibly difficult it's going to be. Um, but you know, it, it can be done, it has to be done if we're not going to be looking at three, four, five, six degrees C by the end of the end of the century.
0: And I suppose one sort of one way of looking at COVID might be to say, well, at the very least, it's opened up the possibility for these kinds of conversations. But it was just a big enough shock to really expose kind of the systemic fragilities of what is an a sort of unprecedented globalised sort of civilization. And um, so in that sense, it may offer some, some, some potential for individuals such as yourself and others to, to, to um, reframe the status quo conventional discourse also in the climate space. And certainly we might look at, say, Johann Rockström's work on planetary boundaries and also Kate Rollworth's work on donut economics. It seems as if uh, there have been interventions which, in a way, uh, although often framed in a uh, palatable manner, are quite radical revisions of the conventional understandings. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I mean, some one of the, the there have been things that have happened during the pandemic which. Uh, involved very rapid transitions, which otherwise wouldn't have happened. I mean, home working is one of, one of those. That, uh, that th- commuting business virtually stopped overnight. People worked from home. Uh, that's one of the biggest rapid transitions um, we've ever seen. Um, and if you can transition in that sort of way over a period of just a few months then there's all sorts of other things that become possible that can make our, our world much greener, more sustainable. You're talking about donut economics and many of these other things. So, you know, I think um, seeing how quickly we can change uh, as COVID has shown maybe brings brings a little bit of hope in that area. And that, you know, it relates to the Pearl Harbor thing I mentioned earlier. If you have a massive threat, you can change to fa- to face that threat, provided you understand it and know how bad it is. The problem at the moment is we don't, uh, politicians at least, do not understand how bad things are or refuse to.
2: Bill, do you think for a, for a civilization that is built on the idea of progress and constantly moving forward, do you think the idea of degrowth will have to be marketed in a way that is seemingly growth and progress and moving forward? Or do you think we'll be able to kind of globally understand this idea of, degrowth and moving back. And we've we talked um, on the podcast before about the idea of living at the level of maybe the average Mexican in terms of CO2 emissions. It might be a beneficial route, but for a lot of the kind of high flyers, in, including the UK, that seems very unpalatable.
1: Well, for a start, progress and growth aren't the same thing at all. Um, and in fact, degrowth is usually just means a every- a reduction in in sort of seeking out higher and higher levels of GDP every year. Um, and nobody would suggest that higher levels of GDP are are linked to happiness because they just aren't, um, and there are many examples of that. Um, so I you know I, I think we yes we would need to redefine well we wouldn't need to redefine what we mean by progress but we'd meet, we'd need to explain to people. Um, what the difference is. We need to explain to people that, that progress isn't having a new iPhone every single year. That isn't progress. Um, progress is, is, you know, if we could look out of our window at um, an area of ground that had been concreted over and um, full of, uh, I don't know, spoil heaps, whatever, all sorts of stuff, and then being able to look out 20 years later, and it was uh, wild meadows, rewilded meadows, that's progress. Um, so you know there are all sorts of definitions of of this, and it, 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 people would need to be educated, yes, because most people don't think of progress in that way.
2: And you mentioned about people would have to be told or educated on ideas of degrowth. Um, I wondered if you could talk about climate authoritarianism, uh, which is you know the top down being told uh, uh, what what to do, and uh, the merits of that. Um, there's a good example of kind of Scotland, which isn't uh, climate authoritarian in any way, but it's doing well, comparatively well in terms of climate issues. Um, But I was just wondering if if you could speak to the climate authoritarian fans uh, amongst our viewers.
1: Yeah, well, I don't, you know, authoritarianism is never a good idea. Um, Ultimately, it will just backfire. You can't tell people you must do this without explaining to them why it needs to be done and how it will be to their benefit. So um, it's not, it's not an area, you know, it's not something I would support at all. Um, And in fact, you need bottom up as well as top down um, ways forward really. And that's where extinction rebellion has come in because, you know, that's a a real grand roots movement, um, which is not, Necessarily forcing people to do things, but it is raising the profile so that people know what and understand what needs to be done. But you know, we need, we need that doesn't mean because you can't have top down authoritarianism, you still need the top, you still need governments to be providing people with the truth and showing them what they need to do to um, bring things under control. Not necessarily legislating for that, but um, advising and doing you know, the sort of job they should be doing if they want to get out of this crisis.
0: Perhaps just to to deepen that line of inquiry uh, around progress and the values and assumptions that animate our culture, often implicit, often sort of hidden from view. I mean, you've written, uh, hacking the earth might be the last thing we ever do. Sometimes when you're in a hole, it's best to stop digging. And uh, this is in relation to perhaps now the inevitability of climate engineering. Certainly, there's a lot of R&D funding going in that direction. And you seem to be striking a very cautionary note uh, when it comes to that kind of intervention, which which uh, in, a, in a manner, I, assu- I I guess, assumes that humans stand sort of outside nature, that we can control natural processes. So the question is, why, despite all of our incredible scientific ingenuity our technological prowess, do we as a culture seem to lack the ability to make wise decisions, which in some situations may mean exercising the precautionary principle, for example
1: yeah well there's you could probably spend several hours trying to answer that and discuss it um, but you know in our in the global economy and society we live in the um, the main driver is wealth and wealth creation. Um, and that, you know, that's up there above all else, really. And that skews everything. Um, it prevents people making wise decisions. Um, people make decisions on the basis of what, what's in it for them, what will they get out of it. Um, uh, and that you know, that's where we are as a society and economy today. Um, hopefully it will be changing over the course of the next 100 years, otherwise it will be changed for us by the climate, I think. Um, but l- looking at, at geoengineering, I mean, there's, you know, it is becoming, uh, as a concept, more popular amongst scientists, mainly physicists and engineers, I would say, rather than climate scientists, many of whom are, are dead against it. Um, but it's, if we look at particular schemes, they are risky, they are uh, Detrimental to the environment, massively costly. Um, but on top of that, the whole existence of the idea that you can engineer our way out of climate breakdown is dangerous. If if heads of state think that um, we can use geoengineering, then you can say goodbye to all efforts to cut emissions as a science demands, because they will think it's all right, we've got this other means, we can use that. And you know, once that once that catches on, then then that's it we won't we won't be able to see the emissions cuts we need and i tend to use the analogy if you're you know if you're fighting to protect a city with your loved ones inside you will fight a damn site harder in the last line of defense than the second the last line of defense so you know if world leaders think geoengineering is is a solution then it's going to cause huge problems
2: and to contrast the geoengineering idea um in your discussions in the climate science sphere, how much does climate justice come into it, and is that important, or should we kind of park that and just focus on the climate emergency, Or will they both are they both kind of symbiotic? they will solve each other if worked on at the same time?
1: Well, climate justice is vital at all sorts of levels. I mean, from you know, in, in terms of rich countries versus poor countries, in terms of people's jobs, people that are working in high-carbon sectors like oil and this sort of thing. Now, are they just going to be thrown out on the scrap heap? Um, that's not going to be a fair way forward. Similarly, you can't just expect um, developing countries to to do exactly as you're doing um, when they've never had a chance to to develop a. You know, a a society and economy that can keep them all in a, in a reasonable manner. So that's where contraction and convergence sort of comes out on top in terms of um, protecting people from different countries. But climate justice is is a critical part of how we need to tackle the climate emergency. I think it has to be in there.
0: I suppose that's the message that government has to get because we cannot rely on the private sector to deliver... Climate justice, climate equity—absolutely
1: not. I mean, you know, it's that relates to the whole business of of the climate emergency not being capable of being sold through capitalist economy, and um, it won't work. We need we need community-based solutions at all sorts of levels, from you know, from a few individuals up to nations. That's the only way it'll be managed. If I mean, I'm talking about the climate emergency as if, you know, as if uh, we can still not climate change on the head. But I, I remember at the beginning of this, I said that dangerous or pervasive climate change is now unavoidable. So you know, we'll, what we're going to be facing is, is dangerous climate change and all that entails. Plus, we're going to have to be trying to reduce emissions dramatically at the same time. So we're going to have the worst of both worlds now. If we started, if we we were where we are now, 30 years ago, uh, we might have been okay, but it's going to be very difficult now.
0: So it's really all hands on deck as soon as possible. And it may very well be that at some point in the the near future, we're going to see new alliances emerge between perhaps Extinction Rebellion and uh, uh, Climate Realists, we might call them, (laughs) Once the once the the real situation becomes impossible to ignore, that's the hope, I suppose, that these new coalitions will form, and get then galvanise the critical action required to at least ameliorate the worst effects of the inevitable climate impacts.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think we do need new new groups to form of of. Um, uh, the political parties as well as um, activists I think we need to have a, a, a realignment of politics in not only in the UK but also you know in most other countries if not all other countries I mean even in the United States now obviously um, there are better prospects for emissions reductions now with um, Trump out of the way but then Joe Biden is on the one hand talking about uh, big customer emissions on the other hand uh, handing out new oil and gas exploration licenses and that's just another example of how leaders do not quite get it at least the current crop of world leaders anyway
0: well we're ro- rolling to a close bill thanks so much again for for your time and for be wi- for being willing to to roam widely with us across this terrain so i'm going to um hand over to Zoe for, for our last question
4: Maybe a bit more of a personal question um, I had when reading your letter denouncing the Royal Geography Society. Um, obviously, I, I think that's amazing, but you, there's the risk, I guess, of being ostracised and getting criticism from your peers, which is undoubtedly you know, a necessary evil or step to um, standing up for what you believe in. And I guess my question to you is, you know, where do you find that courage to speak out for what you believe in regardless of whatever consequences come next. So I feel like a lot of people will probably stay silent when they shouldn't because they don't have that courage or they don't know how to find it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's probably easier for me because I'm, you know, I'm not a young um, geologist starting off in my career, which would, you know, would have made, made me think probably much, uh, much harder about what I was doing. But um I mean, having considered it, I just thought I can't continue to be a, a fellow of a society who is not only supporting the fossil fuel sector but you know has massive links with the fossil fuel se- uh, sector has no environmental policy, has no indication of uh, uh, no knowledge of its carbon footprint, no indication of where it's going to go in the future, and really just you know, is, is continuing to work in in its own little bubble without. As if climate breakdown wasn't even happening, and you know it, it was—it was such a bad situation. There was no way I could continue having links with the Geological Society, even though I'd been a former council member. Um, you know, it was too late. And in fact, you know, there is a campaign being run by Scientists for Global Responsibility, which I'm a patron of, and they have been looking at uh, professional societies and analysing their their. Um, supporters and their their green credentials and they've been putting pressure on them and the geological society now has said that it's going to do various things um in terms of improving its its green credentials so you know maybe it's it's made a small difference
0: brilliant well i think we're going to leave it there thank you so much bill for uh, for your time for your 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 wisdom your insights And uh, we'll obviously include links to your Substack and your Twitter and your writings on the episode page. And I guess all that's left to say is keep up the good fight. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And all
1: of you as well. Thanks very much. It's been great. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning into Global Governance Futures. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global governance and if you like this content please do leave us a comment and subscribe until next time